All right, let's get started. The word discipline is not one of those words that we love to hear, especially when it's in the form of corrective discipline. Uh, we tend to think of it in terms of parenting, discipline that's applied. We've all given, we receive discipline in some way, but it's not something that most of us are eager for, is corrective discipline. And so the term church discipline, to apply discipline in the, within the setting of the church, can make people uncomfortable. The idea that it, for some people is that churches are just loving and affirming, and, and so the notion of discipline can seem difficult, be a troubling one to accept. And yet the New Testament in a number of places, speaks about the reality of sin. We talked about this even last Sunday in James chapter 5, and engaging about sin, uh, confronting sin, um, in exhorting correction, seeking repentance for sin, and even to the point of applying discipline for one who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but who uh, refuses to turn from sin. For most Bible-believing, Bible-practicing churches, this all falls under the heading of church discipline or church restoration or some combination of those terms. Uh, Grace Bible Church has long had a policy statement on discipline and restoration. If you're a member here, you signed a covenant at one point that includes that statement within it, so you've hopefully read that before. We, though, have rarely preached about the topic. Um, from time to time, we, we pause from studies of books in the Bible to do topical um, sermons to a particular issue, but still looking at it through the lens of Scripture, of course. Church discipline has not been high on that list of topics for us. Uh, on several occasions, we've talked about the, the, the importance, the tremendous value of the local church and, and why, uh, as believers, we need to be connected with the local church and serving within the local church. But we haven't specifically talked about the church and its role in discipline. So... Why now? Why, why this morning? Well, last spring, the elder team met for a retreat, um, covered a number of topics during our discussions at that point, but one of them was going back over the restoration policy and, and, and just looking through it to identify some areas that we felt like needed some change. I, I think we all agreed that the, the policy as it stands is good and biblical, but there were some areas that just needed to be changed. I'll highlight a couple of those as we go through the sermon. Um, but, but the short of it is that we did that in March, I think it was May roughly, that we finally finished um, with what we wanted to propose. And, and the way it works here at Grace is something like that. That's part of the covenant we bring before the members at some point and ask them for feedback for a 30-day comment period. And we just haven't had a congregational meeting at which to do that. Hope to do that at some point this fall, but it made sense that we should preach about the topic first, that we should look at Scripture and see what Scripture says about it ahead of putting forth to you the proposal that we would have for revisions. And so this seemed as good a Sunday as any because we're in between Sundays, we, in between studies, I should say. We finished James last week. We're going to get back to Isaiah next week. For those of you that like to read ahead, you could probably read Isaiah 1 through 39 this week. That'll give you some reading, huh? There's, there's some homework for you. We're going to actually pick up in chapter 40 when we get back at it next Sunday in Isaiah. But this just seemed to fit this morning in between those studies. And so if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 5. If you have the sermon note insert, it says 1 Corinthians 5, and I think it says Matthew 5. That's my, uh, my mistake. It should say Matthew 18. We'll get to that. Uh, in a little bit, but there are a number of New Testament passages 
that speak to the overall message of correction, of dealing with sin in the life of the body. Galatians 6.1 speaks of believers who seek to restore one who is ensnared in transgression. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 includes a command in it to admonish those who are idle. 1 Timothy 5 speaks to confronting a sinning elder. Titus 3.10 speaks of the church responding when there is somebody divisive in their midst who is causing disunity. So there's a number of passages that speak to this issue on, on, on different levels, but the primary passages that we look to for instruction on this topic are 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, you'll see when we get there, uh, it is Jesus speaking about a lot of different areas where the followers of Jesus Christ interact with sin. There's dealing with temptation, there's dealing with reconciliation, and then in particular the section in Matthew 18 that deals with discipline. Here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to a church. We've talked about the church in Corinth before. It's one that he was um, used by God to plant where he spread the gospel. A community of believers grew and, and began to meet together. Paul moves on after several years with them, and he is traveling, and he's writing 1 Corinthians back to answer questions. He's received questions from them, and so several times in the 1 Corinthians you'll see as to, and then he picks up a, a particular matter, and our assumption is he's received these questions, and so he's now answering them. This piece in 1 Corinthians 5 is he has been made aware of a situation, a situation that is known to the church, and he is going to speak to that particular situation of tolerating sin. The church at Corinth was uh, in the midst of a very pagan culture, and they are now struggling with a, a very obvious pattern of sin that is going on and being tolerated within the church. So let me pick up verses 1 and 2 just to start with 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. You could say boastful or proud would be the word there. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So what Paul confronts here is outrageous. This is not just a, an issue of sexual immorality, but he makes the point that this is something that is even offensive to unbelievers. That a man is having a relationship with his father's wife is something that even the culture finds intolerable, much less God's law. Leviticus 18 speaks specifically to this kind of sin, and, and we know that it violates God's design for sex. Paul spends very little time on the sin itself. Really, his concern, though, is with the, the church. It's how the church is responding to what's happening in their midst to this sin that is happening. And what he finds most shocking is that the local body of believers seems to not just be sort of passive about this man who is a part of the body sinning in this way, but they actually seem to be in some way tolerating it, if not being proud of it. That's what he says there in verse 2. You are proud of this. You are arrogant about this. And in fact, in verse 6, he writes, your boasting is not good. Now, it's, it's difficult for us to ascertain exactly what it is they would be boasting about. What we could presume is, is from what we know about first century culture in a mostly Gentile city. There was this, this sort of 
dichotomy in, in man's thinking between the body and the spirit. The body could do what it wanted. The spirit was sort of the sacred part, and so the body could participate in sexual immorality without consequence, no implications on the spiritual well-being of the person. That was sort of the prevailing mentality of the culture and probably seeping into those who are young believers in the church. And so they they seem to be at a place where they think that making a fuss about this is wrong, that in fact, they should tolerate this, if not in some way approve of it. The church is clearly blind to the truth. What we've seen from scripture as we've studied this topic before is that sex is designed between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage, and that is God's design, and outside of that is, is sin. And this sin is going on, it is persisting without repentance. That's really the point of emphasis I want you to see as we go later on in, in this chapter, that this, this individual, this man, is not turning from that sin, and it doesn't seem to phase the church. And Paul says in verse 2, there are two things that you should be doing that, that almost seem obvious. He says you should be mourning, and you should be removing this man. You should be grieving this sin. That, that there should be a sense that you have a, a guy who who sits with you in the worship service, who is under the teaching of the word with you, who is breaking bread together with you at the Lord's table, who is carrying on in flagrant sin that is known not only here, but probably known to the community at this point. And, and you're acting as if nothing is wrong. You should be grieving at his sin and at your response. And then he goes on, and, and this is where it, it, he gets very serious, that the, it's not just his sin, it's the sin of your complacency. You should be removing him. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. If you think that's strong, at the end of this whole section, after he has taught on this, at the very end in verse 13, he says, purge the evil person from among you. Remove, purge, both the, the same basic Greek root word. It's the idea of, of lifting something up, taking it from where it is and, and separating it from where it is. But it's just a, intensified in verse 13 with a little prefix on it that has the idea of lift up and out. It, it's like, get it out of here. This is, not, this is not something you should be abiding by. This is something that you should be separating from. It is clearly removal. We'll talk about this more when we get on into to Matthew 18. But, but he's saying here, when the body gathers in the name of the Lord Jesus, you must remove this man. Because he is, he is acting like an unbeliever. He's, he's professing to be a believer in Jesus Christ, one who loves the Lord and who responds to sin by, by confessing and repentance before the Lord, but he's not doing that. He is persisting in his sin, and so he is not acting like a brother in Christ, so stop treating him like a brother in Christ. This is really serious. But the, the, the thing to keep in mind in this is this, this individual, this man, is not repenting. He's not turning from his sin. And so to allow him to continue to do this, to either ignore it or tacitly approve of it, is to encourage his rebellion against God. It is to, as a church, say, this is perfectly acceptable to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ who carries on in immorality and does not turn from it. Our, our church's statement on discipline and restoration gives three purposes for discipline. I encourage you to, to read through that existing statement when you have time, but one of them cites 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and a couple of other verses related to it, but I, I think 1 Corinthians 5, 6 is tied into all of these purposes in one sense. If you look at the verse, it says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
And our statement says, one of the purposes of church discipline is to protect the purity of the church and to guard other Christians from being tempted, misled, divided, or otherwise harmed. That last part, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's, he's talking about something that culturally would, would have been understood by most of his readers. Certainly his, his Jewish readers would have understood how they would take a, a little piece of dough from this week's baking. They would take a little bit of, of leftover dough and they would save it for next week's baking. And they would make that into the dough to help to, to ferment that dough to, to use it for next time. And so there'd always be a little portion that would be carried over. Of course, the thing that we know is they didn't have... Tupperware or Rubbermaid or anything like that. So it wasn't like that little piece of dough was securely and in a sanitary way put away. And so over time, as it gained impurities, those impurities would be passed along. And so when we come to the Jewish feast of unleavened bread, there's certainly great spiritual significance in that and symbolism in the leaven, but there's also a cleaning out of the leaven, that the house is cleaned of all of that. So it's also got some hygienic purpose to it as well in that you start with a fresh batch of dough. To Paul's point here, if you tolerate this sin in your midst, it's going to have a spreading effect. It's going to mislead other believers. And it's going to cause them to say, I guess this is okay. I guess within this group, this is, this is okay because they seem to tolerate it and, and they're acting like this guy is just one of them. And so it's going to spread and that's his warning that, that, that this will, it will seem like evil is not such a bad thing and you'll be tempting others to do the same by misleading them. Just as a small impurity can contaminate the leaven, so the Corinthians are, are, are experiencing this spreading um, impure effect of sin in their midst to the degree that, that, as we're seeing, they're already beginning to show pride in their tolerance. Second purpose of church discipline is to lead sinning believers to repentance and back to fellowship with God and his church. God views efforts to restore unrepentant believers as a blessing and a sign of genuine love demonstrated by the church. Conversely, God views a failure to do so as being unloving and hateful. The emphasis here is on a believer who is persisting in sin and who is not repenting, that one of the reasons you church, do church discipline is out of love for that person, to exhort them toward turning, to encourage them to, to, to return to fellowship with God and with the church. Look at verses 4 and 5, and, and you see this purpose played out here in Paul's teaching, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This, this instruction in, in church discipline is clearly for the benefit of the unrepentant sinner. Because what he has in mind here is eternal punishment. When he speaks of the, the individual being saved in the day of the Lord, he's talking about salvation in the same way that we would think about salvation, that it is rescue from eternal punishment, that it is rescue from hell, it is rescue from the judgment that we deserve. And so he's speaking now of church discipline as, as taking seriously the fact that this man professed to believe in Jesus Christ as his Savior, and now going to him and saying, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you need to turn from your sin. You need to, to seek his forgiveness. You, you can't continue to persist in this because to do so, to, to continue to carry on this way in an unrepentant way, you're heading toward eternal punishment. You are acting like an unbeliever. 
You are continuing down a path that is not consistent with walking with Christ. And so the aim now is to help this man take this sin seriously enough to now grieve it and obey Christ and turn from it and respond. Otherwise, he's behaving like an unbeliever. In church discipline, an unrepentant sinner is removed from the church, as he describes here, this this act that we sometimes referred to as excommunication. The idea is that he's removed from the communion of the saints in the local body. And, and the language Paul uses here is deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It, it, it's the idea of the church ideally in function is a body where you find protection and help and encouragement, where the, the spirit is at work bringing conviction of sin, and you, you remove yourself or you are taken out of that environment and put out into the world. It is the sphere where Satan wreaks havoc and where Satan tells you that sin is good and, and you should please yourself in whatever way it, it, it is and that it's all about you. And that is what leads to the destruction of the flesh. It is the, the, the yielding to the sin over and over again in the, in the realm of Satan. And so he's saying here that to remove him from the community of believers where he receives the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to put him out into the world, where Lord willing, the response for him is to, to turn and run. When he realizes he is now in this realm where he is no longer being convicted about sin and where people don't care and they're encouraging, in fact, sinful behavior, the aim is for him to repent and turn and run back to the cross into the body of believers. This should remind us of what we read last week at the end of James chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will what? Save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is, this is in some sense an evangelistic work, but speaking to somebody who professes to already believe the truth in calling them to repent and turn to Christ and say, do not persist in this way. You cannot continue to, to live in rebellion to God. It is an act of genuine love to urge someone who professes faith to repent when he or she persists in sin. And we are praying for corrective discipline to be the, the, the act through which God works and delivers that person's soul. We must get this. Because what we're seeing in Corinth, we shouldn't just shake our heads at. The, the, the reality is here is a professing body of believers that has not just come to the point of not confronting sin, but they now think it's actually admirable to tolerate sin in their midst. They actually think that somehow they're, they're being very special by, by looking the other way or by in some way endorsing it, and nothing could be further from the truth. Their complacency is allowing this man to persist in rebellion against God, and if he continues in rebellion against God, he will suffer eternal punishment. Verses 4 and 5, before we leave this section, I think also help us to understand that unrepentance is key here. The older writers, some older commentators um, on, on this 1 Corinthians 5, on the scenario here, say, well, listen, this, this sin was simply so scandalous something that even the, the pagans thought was offensive. It was so scandalous that he had to be put out of the church regardless of repentance. The, the trouble with scandalous is scandalous is kind of a subjective term as to what the culture, what, what people define as scandalous. Um, and, and so that's just not a helpful way to think about that because what's clear from the warning in verse 5 is if he persists in this. If there's not some intervention that turns him back, it will lead to his eternal destruction. So do this in order to save his soul because he is, at this moment, he is continuing in unrepentance. And that is important. 
Um, that, that, as we're going to see now, as you turn over to Matthew chapter 18, it is this persistence in the sin and not turning back to Christ and not confessing the sin that becomes the, the crucial turning point in the process. Matthew chapter 18, the, the, the chapter is, uh, contains several warnings about the followers of Jesus Christ and sin. He's talking about um, just how... how believers engage. Verse 6 warns against causing another believer to sin, uh, causing him to stumble in some way. Verses 7 through 9 urge followers of Jesus to take action, strong action against temptations that would draw us into sin. So he's repeating this theme of the believer and sin. Verses 10 to 14 speak of the urgency of pursuing someone who is wandering away from the truth. Uh, In fact, verses 12 and 13, in the section prior to where we are, Jesus speaks of a sheep going astray, uses the exact same word um, James does at the end of chapter 5 when he talks about the, the one who wanders away. It's the idea of one who, who is walking, presumably in the path of truth, connected in some way to the flock, but now is being drawn aside and has now left the flock and is walking away, and the, the, the billboards with the flashing lights of temptation are drawing him away. And so Jesus is describing how the shepherd goes out and pursues this sheep to bring him back. So each of these paragraphs in Matthew 18 says something to followers of Jesus Christ about their relationship with him and sin and our need to battle sin. And with that in mind, if you look at verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Here's the distinction between here and Matthew 5, the one uh, here in 1 Corinthians 5. The one in 1 Corinthians 5 is public. The church is aware. It is not something that Paul needs to sort of walk them through a process kind of of investigation and inquiry to understand what's going on. They are aware, and they are being arrogant about it. But here in Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about what typically happens between believers. There is sin from one believer against another, or there is sin by one believer that is observed by another. Just kind of the ordinary path of, of life as a believer is sin is something that we sometimes observe, something that we either commit or we see in another believer's life. Jesus had just been, in verses 10 through 14, instructing pursuing a straying sheep. Now he's being more specific. If that, that one that has strayed from the flock is caught in a sin, then, then this is what you need to do. You need to go to him as a brother or sister in Christ. It's worth noting that a, a number of the earliest Greek copies of Matthew's gospel do not contain the words against you. So in, in Matthew 18, 15, when it says, if your brother sins against you, we, we say that because when the, the, the translators who give us our English translations are relying on manuscripts, on copies, old ancient Greek copies of, of parts of the New Testament. And so you want to get the earliest possible manuscripts, the closest to Matthew's original. And in many of those earliest manuscripts, against you is not there. And so the New American Standard translates Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go. Uh, the CSB puts a footnote and says against you is not in those earliest manuscripts, which it, that's helpful to us. We know that this is already following a section in which the underlying theme is pursuing. It is going out after that sheep. It is having concern for that sheep, not necessarily that that sheep has offended you in some specific way. And, and, and so I think it's important that it, it could just as easily be not just somebody who's offended me, but it's I see a brother or sister who is struggling in some sin, and I love them enough to go and speak to them. 
I think that's consistent with the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, Paul writes, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He's talking about a relational shift, but he's also saying you warn him as a brother. He's now, he's not obeying God's word, and so you need to speak to him but you, you warn him. You don't simply wait and say, well, he hasn't offended me, so I don't have to do anything about this. No, you, you still warn him. Someone in the body of believers is rebelling. We do that. Galatians 6.1 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's no requirement that I be the person sinned against. And, and so I, I say all that to go back to Matthew 18.15 and say, I don't think the call here is strictly if you've been sinned against. If you see a brother or sister and they are struggling, they are trapped in some kind of sin, it's an opportunity for you and I to love them enough to pursue them. Now, here's here's the, the structure sort of that he gives, the process that he gives. He emphasizes the fact that you go to him alone, between you and him alone. You don't need to tell anyone else. You don't need to bring anyone else. The exhortation of scripture at this point is that this be a private interaction. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ask for wisdom or for prayer. If you're, if you're saying, I, I don't know what to do, I've not done something like this before, but you're not identifying the person that you need to speak to. In other words, seek wisdom, seek prayer, but don't go and say, hey, so-and-so over there is doing this sin and I need to go talk to him. What do I do? No, you just go and say, I, I need help. I've got a brother or sister who's struggling in some sin and, and I've not done this, how, how do I speak to that person? Uh, just, it, it's okay to ask for wisdom or prayer, but the, the point that Jesus is, is really emphasizing is, this is you and that person alone. And the, the, there's at least a couple of reasons, obvious reasons for that. One is the, the potential of misunderstanding. If, if I, I think that, I, I, that I've seen you sinning, or I, I think you've sinned against me, or I think you've said something against me, but I'm, maybe I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I wasn't there. Maybe I got it by hearsay. I need to, I need to go to you and hold this sort of loosely and say, here's, here's what I heard. Here's what I think you might have done. In other words, I, I, I'm being cautious about this, and, and I don't want to make wrong assumptions. So unless the sin is obvious, in situations where it may be very obvious, I'm going to go to you privately. I'm going to hold loosely to what I say, and I'm going to ask you, did, did you say this, and, and what did you mean by it? And, and you may well say, oh, no, I'm sorry. This was a total misunderstanding. I was talking about this or that, and, and, and it's clear, and, and the matter is settled. But secondly... If you come to me and it's clear that I did sin, then the nature of our engagement is loving correction. It's not, to, it's not to bring shame. It's not to bring mockery. It is rather for you to help me to see what I did wrong and to, to help me to that place where I acknowledge it and say, yep, I, I messed up and I'm asking forgiveness. Uh, your aim is to help me to see, to acknowledge. And, and, and scripture says, if, if I do, then you have gained a brother. At that point, the process is complete. doesn't mean that there aren't circumstances where you might not say to me, I think, you should, I think you should get some accountability. I think you should get some more help in this area, or you should pursue counseling in this area, or discipleship, whatever it might be. doesn't mean there's necessarily not anything that happens next, but this primary aim has been to help me see my sin and turn from it, and if that's the case, then it stops there. If I don't respond, or, or if at this point I don't see my sin, 
That's then when we go on to, to verse 16. Now, before we do that, this is one of the places, I, I mentioned to you that what, what prompted all this was the elders reviewing the, the, the statement on restoration. One of the things we observed in the, in the current statement is it, it seems to, um, the existing statement, perhaps unintentionally, it seems to engage the elders at the very beginning of the process, that the elder team somehow is involved almost at step one and, and seems to engage the elders right there, almost implying over elder oversight from the start. Um, we want to be clear that the kind of activity that's going on in Matthew 18, 15, and verse 16 for that matter, it's the kind of stuff that goes on between believers and should go on all the time. It should be, it should be our joy to give and to receive correction. To, to, to be able to, to be admonished, but also to lovingly give admonition. And so there's, there's no necessary reason to engage elders at this point. Um, it, it, there, there may be at this point, it, it's just two believers who are speaking. There may be lingering consequences that may go on after a circumstance, but there's no, there's no carrying on the process per se. All right, verse 16. But if he does, does not listen, so you've done the one-to-one, -one, but if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So unfortunately, not all one-to-ones go well. There are times when the person says, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. And you can't see eye to eye and come to a place of agreement. There's still misunderstanding. Or the person may say, yep, I did it and I don't care. That's the way it is. That's who I am, whatever. Or blame shifting or whatever. And it, it hasn't gone well. At that point, Jesus says, that's when you widen the, the circle of involvement. Again, this is not what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5. Sin is obvious. It's known to the community. The believers are well aware. There's no need to, to sort of investigate further. In, in this case, the purpose, he says, of bringing one or two is to see if the charge is established. If you see that again in verse 16, take one or two with you that every charge may be established. The goal here is not that I go get one or two of my best friends, tell them everything that I think you did, tell them what a terrible person you are and how I tried to talk to you and you didn't respond and now you need to come with me and help tell this person how wrong they are. That's not what, what Jesus is driving at here. What he's driving at here is, is I, I may still be wrong in my accusation, the accused may still be wrong in, in their response, but, but I'm bringing one or two people as mature believers who will sit and, and listen and who will hear what I say and hear what you say and who will ask questions and will see if, if indeed that accusation stands. If it's after listening to it, is this, is this correct? It, 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 slow, careful process. It's consistent with the Old Testament law, the idea of having witnesses. But it is, it's the nature of corrective discipline. The church should not be something we rush this is not something that we are moving quickly to try to get to judgment on. Again, unless it's a situation where somebody's being very divisive in the church, that the elders need to step in and handle that. But in ordinary situations, unless the sin has been really flagrant, then this, this should be a, a, a cautious process of asking questions and asking the witnesses what they've heard and, and what they've seen. Now, one other sort of, I, I can't cover every instance thing, I just one more caveat. We've talked about this before. There may be situations where there is a potential for abuse or there is abuse or there is a situation in which there should be um, some level of protection. The, the church 
when I say cautious and slow, the church needs to take that seriously. If at any point in the process it looks like there is someone at risk, someone in danger, somebody who might be being abused, then the church needs to take seriously its involvement in terms of protection and step in and and leave some of the the inquiry and and the rest of the process to, to deal with. But we need to be concerned about that and we need to act on that part and give protection. Um, but the, the process itself in Matthew 18 is really meant to give accuser and accused a chance to speak, a chance to hear what they say, a chance to ask questions, and then to see does it stand. If there is a sin that needs repentance, then that's, that's the aim, too, of the witnesses, is to encourage it. But if after all that is done, there is no repentance and there is no reconciliation, and it is clear that as far as they can see, now two or three people believe that this accusation stands, um, then this becomes an area where the, the process moves on. This again, in our current statement, just to, to remind you again of why we brought this up, the existing document seems to make the elders the deciding witnesses in this. This already in the second step that the elders have to do this. And, and again, it would be our idea as elders, you, you can involve an elder at that process, but we think this can be done between mature believers. This is what Jesus is teaching. And so bring the witnesses in the end, if the sin seems clear, person is not repentant, then it moves on. Verse 17. Matthew 18, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if Two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. At this point, we have two to four believers who have affirmed that a professing brother or sister in Christ seems to be ensnared in sin, but is not acknowledging it and not turning from it. At that point, they should speak to the elders. This is the stage of of engaging those who are given the responsibility of shepherding and overseeing the church and and laying out the situation to them so that the elders then can lovingly communicate with the accused. Say, we need to sit down and talk. We need to to try to understand the situation. This is what we've been told, and we want to hear from you. Um, The the goal, again, is does the charge, is it affirmed, or is there some some sense that maybe not? If If it's affirmed, if the elders see this, they ask questions, they listen, they hear all sides, and they come to the conclusion that, yes, this is a sin that carries on, that continues, and it's clear that a member of the body is contradicting that person's profession of faith in Christ by continuing an unrepentant sin, then they are charged to tell the church. Not not for purposes of mockery or shame. It is so that the body can now lovingly take up the pursuit so that the body of believers, the brothers and sisters, can come alongside and appeal to this person and encourage repentance. The hope is that the brothers or sisters will pursue and will call this individual to turn from his or her sin and turn to Christ and find the forgiveness that is in Christ. And if that happens, there is rejoicing. When that happens, there is rejoicing at reconciliation. There may be consequences. That's the way life works. But there is rejoicing that believers are doing what believers do, confessing and turning from sin and enjoying the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
If the sinner refuses, that's really when we hit the point of, this is where the term church discipline really comes in. This is where corrective church discipline comes in, and it's very much like 1 Corinthians 5. It's just using different steps to get there. When Paul spoke of remove that person, put them out into the sphere of Satan. It is now taking that person who has claimed to be a fellow believer in Jesus Christ and saying, you are no longer acting as a believer. You are not turning from sin. You are not seeking repentance or forgiveness. And so if you are going to continue this way, then you are acting like an unbeliever. And so the church treats that person as such. One other note, uh, Pastor Short mentioned this to me during the break, um, that, that in our current statement, one of the things that our current statement speaks of is some options here at this last step of censure or kind of almost a probationary status. It's a lot of different things that um, probably sound a little bit more like Washington policy in some points than, than is necessarily what we're seeing here in Scripture. Um, scripture is saying either there is repentance and then there's the, the ordinary discipleship and follow-up that goes with that. Or there is the, the treating this person now as a Gentile and a tax collector. The church can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith. That person no longer is welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper because they are not acting as a believer. Now, let, let me just, I want to come back to something here, but let me just connect verses 18 to 20. Because we've all heard verses 18 to 20, mostly verse 20, used in different ways where two or three are gathered and they pray and, and, and have often heard this in terms of, of prayer and that this is sort of a separate teaching on prayer. I, I would say to you again, you read all of Matthew 18 and it's addressing the followers of Jesus and matters of sin and forgiveness and reconciliation and all of that. So this is not a, a separate instruction about prayer in its context. Verses 18 through 20 are about a local church's authority to reach what is clearly one of the most serious decisions that a, a body will reach. To, if you've listened to this and you've thought, wow, that for a local church to say, I know that you are a member here and I know that you have professed faith, but you are no longer acting like a believer and we are now going to treat you as an unbeliever, if that sounds to you like a serious, solemn sort of decision, it is. And that's why Jesus is saying what he does in terms of saying he delegates authority into the body of believers. And so when he speaks of binding and loosing, it is, it's judicial terms. It's finding guilt or finding innocence is really what it means. And it's saying that even in that, even in the smallest of Christian communities, that responsibility and that authority of discipline comes from the Lord because there is urgency to this. This is something that we, we must practice, and we do so on the authority of our Savior. There is no guarantee that we'll always do it right. Only Jesus is perfect. But local bodies still need to do this sort of work, and they need to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as best they can, applying biblical wisdom as gently and lovingly as they can with the hope of restoring one who has professed faith and who is not acting like it. It's worth noting that verses 18 and 19 is the first place in this section where the pronoun you, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven. First place in this passage where it's a plural pronoun, speaking to the community. When you as the community act in this way, this is authority that is delegated by me. Prior to this, in verses 15 through 17, all the pronouns are singular. In other words, he is talking to individual believers and saying this interaction, 
This, this is you as a believer. This, this is not just church here. This is you loving brother or sister enough to go to them and speak to them and, and urge them to repentance. Right down to the outcome in verse 17 when it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you are no longer to fellowship with this person as if they are a brother in Christ. doesn't mean no contact. I, I, I've been through a situation once where, where people were like going out of their way physically to, to be at a physical distance from the other person and had to say, no, I don't, I don't think that's what Scripture's saying here. But it is now seeing that person differently. This is someone who, and the writer in Hebrews speaks of this, someone who has tasted all the benefits of life in the local church, tasted the fruit of all that, and have now chosen to live in rebellion to God. And so therefore, they need Christ. And so if there's opportunity, I am still going to urge them to repent, to, to, to follow Christ and to obey. And we still hold out that hope. The, the reason in all of this that we speak about discipline and restoration is because the hope is restoration. The hope is that the brother or sister who has persisted in this sin, that God in his grace will open their eyes to the truth, that they will come to the place of confessing their sin and asking forgiveness, and they will return, and they will be joined to the flock, and, and we will see God's good work, and he will have done that using the obedience of his people to pursue, to love enough to pursue. I'll finish with this. Some of you have probably heard me tell this story in the past. Forgive me if you've heard it before. When I was in my first year of pastoral ministry, I was all of a wise 28 years old. I had no idea what I didn't know at that point. I now look back and go, I knew nothing at that point. Um, but one of the first things that I came into the pastorate dealing with, and, and we had already been at the church, um, so we knew the situation, was a young woman probably just a, a few years older than I was at that point, who was married and had children, and she was leaving her husband for another man. Um, she, was, she had already acted for divorce, and she was leaving him. And that first year, I can still remember vividly, um, just wrestling with the anxiety and the stress, um, the meetings. Um, I, I can remember sitting with her and just imploring her to, to not do this, to, to turn back to the Lord, to turn back to her husband. And, and she didn't, and she left, and that, that family was shattered. And there were long-term and, and difficult consequences that ensued. We were there, this was in Alaska, we were there about six or seven more years, and then we left, and then a couple of years after that, um, Robin and I were invited back and had a chance to go back to the church and preach. So this is about 10 years now after the fact. And I was got up to preach that morning, and, and there she was in the congregation. Now, she had moved away, hundreds of miles away, and there she was. That was the one Sunday morning she was back in the area, and by God's sweet providence, there she was, and she was worshiping in the congregation. And uh, her second husband had, had died tragically, and um, she could not be, for various reasons, couldn't be reconciled to her first husband, but she was repentant. And, and I can remember vividly standing in the hall when she came up to Robin and I, and, and she said, I wish I had listened. I, I remember that, and I remember people coming, and I wish I had listened. I'm sorry I didn't, but thank you. I don't tell you that so you can say, wow, Pastor Doug, that's an impressive story of pastoral ministry, because I had, I had no engagement in that woman's life for better part of 10 years. I tell you that because too often when we think of church discipline, we think of it as a terrible thing, as something that just 
is, is marred with problems and it's just, a, it's just a nightmare and we don't want to do it. We just want to be loving and affirming. And I'm here to tell you, I've seen the hand of God at work and he's called us to be obedient to this. And, and there, is, there is nothing more thrilling than to see someone who has strayed, the one that has gone out from the flock, who is now returned and is now worshiping. And she has since gone on to be with the Lord. And I know that one day I'm going to join in heaven and stand alongside and worship with her. And, and church discipline is never easy. It's a, it's a challenging process on its best case scenarios. And it doesn't yield immediate changes of heart more often than not. And yet we are called to be obedient to love the family that we have been put in, to, to cling tightly to the family and the body that we are made a part of, to worship here and to be thankful that God would, would use others to hold us accountable, who would speak into our lives and to encourage us to do the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as people who are Again, reminded of your grace, all here who are trusting in you, you have saved us. Lord, we, we are not in any position to stand and cast stones to, to look down on others. We can look at, at all of our own foolishness and sin. And you and your mercy gave yourself to the cross to rescue us from our sin and from the punishment that it deserves. And so, Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we thank you for the presence of your Spirit in the lives of your people here within this body of believers to, to help us, to strengthen us, to convict us, to cause us to see our own sin and to exhort us toward repentance. We're thankful that you, you attach us to a body where we can be in a local church Lord willing, we can see others who would love us enough to go after and pursue us. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who's either not trusting in Jesus Christ or who is and maybe thinking, this is, this is me, I'm, I am so caught in this sin and it's secret and nobody knows and I'm making a mess of things, I pray that today would be the day that you would work in their hearts to to cause them both to turn to you, but, but also to turn to, to brothers or sisters for help. And Lord, that we would be a, a church that is not ever marked by mockery or foolishness or shaming people, but that we would be a loving body of believers in our, in our walk, in our care, in our exhortation. Lord, thank you for the gift of repentance. Oh, we... We have tasted of it. All here who are followers of you have, have shared in the, the joy of what it is to be reminded that our sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done. Lord Jesus, thank you. Work in our community here in Grace Bible Church that we would be a community that would love holiness, that we would want to uphold your name in holiness, that would treat sin seriously, but that would would treat grace as seriously as well, and that would remind people of the hope and truth that is found in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.